Well, hi, everyone. As soon as we start talking about the Holy Spirit, people start getting nervous. But the, the Spirit of God is stirring. He, he's stirred a bunch of college students recently at Asbury College and then other campuses around the country. And soon people are lining up for miles to get a taste of this outpouring. How many of you know, just if nothing else, our nation is hungry for the Spirit of God? And yet there's a wide range of views on how the Spirit actually works, from like hyper-charismatic to hyper-fundamentalist with everything in between. And I'll just declare myself up front at this point. When I say that at Grace, you know, we believe in the full range of the movement of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. I've said before that we're, we're charismatic with a seatbelt, uh, especially in our public gatherings. But, but the Spirit is the engine that runs the church. The Spirit is the engine that runs the life of the individual Christian. See, we, we have this unbelievable privilege of having intimate access to the Spirit of God himself inside of us, inside you and me. And so in, in John 14, 16, Jesus says that the, the Father will give you another advocate, the word is paraclete, to help you. Now, every Bible version kind of has a different translation for this word paraclete. Again, not parakeet. We're not talking about a, a colorful little bird that sits on a cage. This is the Holy Spirit. And some translate this word to mean comforter. And some say helper or counselor. Here the ESV says advocate. According to the original language, it means one who is called alongside of, one who will be your companion, your strengthener, your guide. Uh, our English word comfort actually carries the same idea. Comfort is a compound word that com comes from the Latin. The, the first part, com, means to be in association with. The second part comes from fortis, which means to strengthen. And so our, our English word for fort, for example, a military fort, it comes from the same word fortis. And so when you put these two words together, the word comfort means to be strengthened by one's company. And, and so the Holy Spirit is our, our relational fortress. And notice when Jesus calls him a counselor or a comforter, he, he treats him as a person and not a force. One of the mistakes that people make is calling the Holy Spirit an it, but he is a he. Uh, and, and it makes a big difference in your life if you understand that you're being indwelt and led and purified by a person who in his essence is the love of God, not by this kind of impersonal, you know, the force be with you kind of thing from a distant God. Now, later in John 20, 21, Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, now, as the Father has sent me, he's sending them out now, I'm sending you. And with that, notice what he does, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit, the breath of of God. He did the same thing uh, with the disciples as God did with Adam and Eve at the creation. He breathed into them. And we're, we're spiritual beings. We're, we're being filled with God's own vitality, God's own spirit. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, like, this is how the gospel is going to get preached. This is how neighborhoods are going to be changed. This is how the Christian life is going to be lived, how sin is going to be avoided. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the breath of God blown into the children of God. And so the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, the one that has been given to us, inside us, so that we might experience the presence of God every single day, every second of every single day. So, so think about it as think about him as the, the breath of God. Like when you're alive, breathing is the most basic function that your body performs, along with the beating of your heart. And this is the relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit. He's like breathing. Without the Holy Spirit, God has made no other provision for you to live the Christian life. 
And there's one particular chapter of the Bible that outlines what life in the Spirit looks like, maybe more than any other. And and it's this passage, Romans 8. And today we're going to start in verse 1. And by the end of the chapter, nine weeks from now, I think we're going to find that the main job of the Holy Spirit is to help you and I to live the Christian life. And a key element is to continually show us that God's love for you and us works. Like, I don't understand that and, and, and walk in that. And if you don't, like, your Christian life is going to start to become defective. And so through this chapter, we're going to see Paul building his case about the fullness and the satisfaction of life in the Spirit. That's the title of our series that we launched today. Now, you might be asking, well, why a nine-week study on one chapter, like on Romans 8? Well, let me just give you a few reasons why we landed here. First of all, while all Scripture is God-breathed, Some sections of Scripture have been uniquely used by God through history, and this is one of them. In fact, this may be the greatest chapter in the Bible. There are some rivals out there, I get it. Psalm 23, John 15, Leviticus 19, Revelation 5. But but Romans 8 includes some of the most memorable and memorized uh, verses in all of the Bible. Second, this chapter offers us a new way of living, not just a new way of believing or thinking. And those two things are definitely connected. But if you try to live the right things without believing them, it will lead you to legalism. If you try to believe the right things without living them, it will lead you to hypocrisy. And so Romans 8 connects these two aspects of faith. This chapter includes one of the most sustained explanations of the heart of the gospel and really the most thrilling explanation of how it's lived out. And so the first seven chapters of Roman, Paul is explaining these wonderful theological truths like justification by faith, of union with Christ, of salvation through Christ alone. And then starting in chapter 8, Paul begins to explore how these things are actually worked out in real life. Because the scary truth is that it's possible to believe all the right things and still be dead in your sin. Third, As I alluded to a moment ago, there's, I think, no greater passage in all the Bible on the the Holy Spirit than Romans 8. Like The Holy Spirit is mentioned continually throughout this chapter, and we learn how he helps us to have a real lived experience with God. Like Some of you feel stuck in your faith, and the answer is to learn how to walk in the Holy Spirit as this chapter describes. Now, the final reason for a nine-week series on this chapter is I just believe God wants us to study this passage. Like there were two series that were non-negotiable to me in the planning of this year, way back over a year ago when we started talking about it. One of them was the grief series in the fall, and there was this one. Now, a little context before we get to our verse. You can get there. It's Romans 8, 1 and 2. That's what it would be today. But I want to step back, and I want to see the main theme of the whole book of Romans, not just this chapter. So, so Paul says all the way back in Romans 1, 1, that the whole reason he's writing this letter to the Romans is, is good news. It's the word we use, gospel. Gospel just means good news. And it's, it's mind-blowing, magnificent, earth-shattering news. The gospel is a simple thesis but a revolutionary concept that God saves sinners. It's good news that salvation has come from God, that it's outside of you, that God is the one who saves you. You don't save yourself. And this is a radical idea among most religions. Like most other systems say that a relationship with God is up to you. But Paul would argue that if salvation is up to you, that's actually really bad news because you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, you can't save yourself. I've always thought of this illustration. It's like a kid who falls into, in, into a mud puddle while wearing a nice, clean outfit. 
Like he's walking along, he just trips and plops down right into the mud. Now, now he's covered with mud, including his hands. Now imagine that kid trying to clean himself up, clean himself off with his already muddy hands. What happens when he tries that? Well, he, he just makes himself dirtier. What that kid needs is someone outside himself who is clean, hopefully with a hose <laughs> to make him clean. That, that's his only shot. He can't clean himself up while he's covered in mud. And the gospel says you're, you're too dirty, you're too guilty to clean yourself off. But praise God, Jesus has washed you whiter than snow. And so as the book of Romans goes along and presents this gospel, there are, are four big words of Romans that I want to point out to you, four major themes that we should be aware of as, as we arrive at chapter 8. And the first big word I, I just alluded to is sin. And sin has brought about the, the wrath of God. Things are not okay with God as it relates to the trajectory of sin in the world. You see, we can't get into the, the good news until we internalize the bad news. And the bad news is that because of your sin and mine, we are justifiably under the wrath of God. We are sinners more deeply than we can imagine. And so for the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is pounding away at how deep of a hole sin has dug for us. You, you don't realize how great grace is until you realize how bad sin is. The second big word is this word justification. This is arguably Paul's favorite word. How are we made right with God? Well, he says God justifies you. God declares a sinner to be righteous by faith based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't wait until you get yourself righteous. He does this legal act. He justifies you. And the way I always learned it back in the day was justify means just as if I'd never sinned because of the saving work of Christ. The third big word I want you to see is this word grace. It's a popular word around here. It just means God's undeserved favor, that, that God has a loving disposition toward you and me, that, that we deserve judgment, but instead God gives us favor and love and acceptance. That's called grace. And finally, the fourth big word is this word sanctification. Like, lest you hear that word justification a moment ago and think, woohoo, like now anything goes, I can do whatever I want. Paul continually comes back and he reminds us that, that God saved you to transform you. He saved you from something, your sin, but he also saved you to something, from a life of sin and to a life in the Spirit. And so now that you've been justified from your sin and you've received grace, now you have a new leader and a new Lord and a new heart and a new desire and a new disposition and new loves. And so sanctification is the process by which you're indwelling, you're becoming more and more like Jesus during this lifetime. And so with that big picture, we come to chapter 8, and surprisingly, we find that the main character in the story of your transformation is not you. The main character is the Holy Spirit. So hopefully you've found yourself to Romans 8 by now, as I've been laying all this groundwork. The first step is for the Spirit to connect us, we find, with what Jesus has already accomplished in order that we might live in the fullness of the Christian life. But Paul's acknowledging this tension right up front that's universal. The tension is wanting to live a certain way but not living up to that standard. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you try to live up to a certain standard but you fail. Like you have standards for yourself and then you don't meet them. And maybe you have family standards and you can't seem to live up to them. Or you have job standards, certainly spiritual standards at times. 
So, so you kind of live under the weight of these unmet expectations. I'm not good enough. I'm not successful enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not strong enough or smart enough. And, and you live constantly with a kind of low-grade shame and disappointment in yourself. Anybody relate to any of this? Do you remember when you were a kid and you did something wrong and your parents would say to you those fateful words? They would say, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. You're like, oh, come on. Come on, like what a horrible state of being. You're like, no, 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 where's the belt? Like, where's the, where's the wooden spoon? I'll do it myself if I have to, but I, I don't want to just live under this cloud of disappointment. Some of you are living your lives thinking, God is surely disappointed in me. And so from the, from the jump here, Paul establishes, how does God view sinners like us who are fighting but too often failing? Before he shows us how to live our lives according to God's spirit, and in the rest of chapter 8, he has to establish at the beginning our standing before God and the consequences of that standing. And so he says in our two verses for today, it's Romans 8, 1 and 2, he says these beautiful words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Here's, here's today's kind of summary idea that we desperately need the Holy Spirit living in and through us so that we can live free. Now, before we talk further about that freedom, we, we need to do one more bit of context work. Because if you've been around here at all, you'll know that we, we can't just rush past this word that Paul uses at the beginning, this word therefore. That word therefore means that he's drawing a conclusion. He's building on an idea that he's already established. And to understand the meaning of this passage today, we need to understand what concept he's concluding. And I think he's connecting back to, to two different thoughts that he's presented earlier in Romans. Well, one of them is all the way back in chapter 5, verse 16. He's connecting us back to, to the issue of our standing before God due to our sin nature that can be traced all the way back to, to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. It says this, it says, The free gift is not, the result, it is not like the result of that one man's sin, that one man's sin, of course, being Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. There's an important word. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Again, Another important word. He's talking about sin, and, and which leads to condemnation, and then justification because of Jesus. And so we arrive at 8, and it's like Paul is trying to tell us, listen, guys, this is what I've been saying since all the way back in chapter 5. Sin has condemned you, but Jesus has justified you. So that's one point. But, but he's also building on what he just described in the previous chapter, chapter 7. In fact, if you have your Bible or device open, you can kind of scroll back a page or two and just glance at chapter 7. The, the tension that we feel in chapter 7 is that even after we've been justified by Christ, it seems we still feel the effects of sin every day. We still battle. We're still fighting and too often failing. And Paul says it this way in 7.15. He says, what I hate, I do. Like I do the stuff I don't want to do and what I don't want to do, that's the stuff I end up doing. I have the desire to do the right thing, but then not the ability to carry out the right thing. The good that I want to do, I can't seem to do. Anybody, again, relate to this? And I think we read passages like this, and there are two unhealthy extremes that I've seen people go down with this tension, with sin. One of them is legalism that tries to say real Christians won't struggle with sin anymore. That Paul is referring here only to his pre-Jesus days, and there's no way a real Christian can struggle with ongoing sin. That's legalism. The other extreme is permissiveness, which says Christians are human and will continue to sin just like everyone else. That there's absolutely no difference between how Christians approach sin from the rest of humanity. 
But instead of going to either of those extremes, legalism or permissiveness, and, and, and really given the real struggle and tension of the issue of ongoing sin, Paul gives us the answer. He says the answer to this dilemma is Jesus. In fact, Romans 7.24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And so we start to hear that the guilt and the shame creeping in. I'm never going to break out of this spiral of sin. I'm never going to break out of this addiction. I'm never going to be the kind of person who can keep his cool or who can rein in his tongue or, or, or to get his drinking habit under control. What a wretched man that I am. Who could ever rescue me from this? And we find out that he's not asking a rhetorical question, that there is, in fact, an answer to the question, who will deliver me from this? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Look what he says next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the answer to this tension is to come to the end of ourselves and to realize our need for Christ. This is a very good posture. It's not comfortable, but it's good. We're exactly where we need to be when we're at the end of ourselves. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, wretched man that I am, what must I do? He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Again, the answer has to come from outside of myself. Someone with clean hands who's not in the mud puddle with me. And that answer is Jesus. And so if you feel like you don't measure up, then the answer isn't to try harder. The answer is to look outside of yourself to Jesus Christ and all that he brings you. And so Paul is talking about the Christian's relationship with sin and this force that's too powerful for you to control on your own, which brings us to an important distinction. Paul uses this image throughout Romans of being bound. And the bondage here that he's talking about is not just a bondage to something bad like compulsive shopping or bondage to gossip or slander or bondage to workaholism or bondage to substance addiction or sexual addiction. Paul's talking about a bondage to something much larger, much deeper than these things. He's talking about a bondage to sin. One of the problems in the church is that we often talk about sins without the framework of sin. See, one of the reasons that people stay trapped in their sins is because they only think about sins. But individual sins are the expression of something much deeper. It's this thing called sin. Now hang with me here for a second. When we think about sin, we often categorize it as like things we do that are bad. And so we lie, we steal, we lust, we manipulate, we use people. But there are Sins, these are sins with a lowercase s, but there's the bad things that we do. But the Bible talks about this kind of capital S sin. It's not just the stuff that we do, but it's something that we're trapped in, that we're in bondage to. It's something that holds this world captive. And so when Paul talks here in Romans 7 and 8 about sin and death, he's not just talking about the things that we do. He's talking about the powers that hold this world captive. And Paul understands that we need to be freed from this capital S sin, the gospel, the law of the spirit. It's not just about behavior modification. It's about our transformation of the deepest part of us. And so yes, sin will always be there for Christians. But I like to think of it like this. It's a, it's a force warring at us from the outside. But what Jesus has accomplished is that he set us free from it being this internal force that consumes us and keeps us in bondage. So, so that's what the therefore is there for at the beginning of our passage. Jesus did the work of your justification, and now you can live free. And now the Spirit's job 
is to remind you that you are free. In fact, here's what I want you to see from these two verses. It's that you are doubly free. There are two things here that I think every Christian is free from that I want you to see. The first is that you are free from all condemnation. This is such good news, amen. Did you see it there in verse one? He said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you can attest that condemnation is rampant in our world? Now listen, let me be clear. There are times to condemn. We should condemn things like sex trafficking and racism and abuse of power and senseless violence. We, we would do well to condemn these things. But there's another kind of condemnation. It's the kind where we look at ourselves and we look at others and others look at us through a lens of disgust and shame. It's the condemnation that comes from a heart of sin. So if you've ever walked the streets of a big city, you've probably run across a home or a building that had a big sign across the door that said condemned. What does that mean? It means it's unfit to live in. If a building is condemned, no one can live there until it's repaired. It's so broken down, it's unlivable. And some of you know the feeling of living your life feeling condemned. Like you feel like you're too damaged, you're too broken. Maybe you feel a real heaviness because of your sexual past or you did some things at the time, that, that seemed fun and right, but years later, there, there's just like there's baggage and there's weight and there's guilt. It might be affecting your marriage or, or, or your present state in some way. Some of you guys, maybe you did something that you would never have done while you were in your right mind, but you were wasted, and, and one thing led to another, and now it haunts you. For some of you, there's a recurring sin. You do it, and then, and then you pray for forgiveness, and then you say, God, I'll never do that again. Then you, you go a week or two weeks or three weeks, and then you fall into it again. Or maybe it's words. Maybe you spoke words to someone that you loved and you didn't mean to. And you might have even felt those things at the time, but you said them out loud and now you can't unsay them. And when you lay in bed at night, that conversation plays out over and over and over again in your mind. Some of you made bad financial decisions that sent you into a spiral and deeply affected the people that you love. Or, or maybe you strayed from your marriage and you did something that you just really betrayed your spouse and there's this real sense of guilt. You think, if I had just tried a little harder, if I had just prayed a little more, if I had just worked at it a little bit more, and yet here I am. So some of you feel like a condemned building, abandoned and broken down and uninhabitable because you live with the pain and the memories of, of what you did in the past or what was done to you. You're living under the heavy weight of condemnation and you start playing the movie reel over and over in your head. Cond condemnation preaches to you that you're never gonna get out of this, that you're paralyzed to change, that this is how it's always gonna be and don't expect too much from yourself. And biblically, condemnation is a, is a legal word. It just means found guilty or a judgment ruling against, punishable by death. And so it's like you're trying to live your life under a guilty verdict. And into the courtroom walks our merciful judge and he says, there is no condemnation anymore for my children. There's no more punishment. They're the punishment that has, it has been taken away. God has forgiven you. God has pardoned you. And I hope you can see how important this is. In fact, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way. He said, if you've got a hold of this idea, you will have discovered the most glorious truth you will ever know in your lifetime. He says, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. No condemnation means that you know ahead of time what the verdict over your life is going to be. You, you don't have to live in fear or uncertainty. God has already made up his mind about you. God doesn't have a, 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 a he loves me and he loves me not kind of relationship with you. You know the kind that says, I read my Bible today, he loves me. I didn't read my Bible today, he loves me not. I went to church, he loves me. I slept in, he loves me not. 
No, that's not the relationship. And, and, and when this, this great truth settles in on you, this passage says that the truth of this great promise of no condemnation, you know when it kicks in? You know, notice what the passage says? He says, now. This is already true. We don't have to make it true. We don't have to hope that it'll be true. We don't have to manifest it until it's true. We don't have to wait for it to be true sometime in the future. You see, almost every Christian believes that one day, when we get to heaven, there will be no condemnation for us because of the sacrifice of Jesus. But not enough of us live right now in the light of this truth that there is no condemnation for us because of the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. See, in Christ, you are free now. In Christ, you are holy now. In Christ, you are pure now. And so many Christians get derailed because of condemnation. We've allowed ourselves to, to succumb to the devil's lies and half-truths about condemnation. But there is none left for us. The one who makes all things new, the one who controls the wind and the waves, the one who created the universe out of nothing, the one who grabs sin and death by the throat and tossed them aside like a ragdoll, he is the one that comes in and says, condemnation does not have any power or influence or, or in any effect have power over your life anymore. Starting right now. You don't have to wait for it right now. Now, there's one other part of this short little verse that I want you to see. It's good news for some and not for others. Notice who, who enjoys this gift of no condemnation. He says, only those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul assumes that there are those in Christ and that there are those outside of Christ. He's not a universalist. In fact, he says it explicitly in the next chapter with a tone of grief, that there are those who are accursed and separated from Christ. See, the opposite of the precious phrase, in Christ, is the terrible phrase, separated from Christ. And here's the very difficult truth. If you don't believe, if you don't by faith receive this free gift of, of Christ's justification, the condemnation of sin remains for you. There's no way to sugarcoat this. Outside of Christ, you will never experience the true freedom of forgiveness. But there's always room in Christ. And Christ's word to every sinner is, come, trust me, enter. I will be your life. I will be your righteousness. I will be your pardon because I have also been your condemnation. It's a beautiful invitation. So the very first way that every Christian is free is that you're free from condemnation. But remember, you're doubly free. So here's the second way. You're also free from sin and death. Now, Paul in verse two, he's answering the question why those in Christ Jesus shall experience no condemnation. His answer is this, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so he's contrasting these two laws, the law of the spirit and the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit is the gospel, the good news of Jesus the message of new life through faith in the resurrected Christ. Ironically here, the law of sin and death is referring to, I believe, the Old Testament law, which re represents a kind of works-based approach to salvation. There are only two ways to salvation. It's either by the law or it's by grace. And if by the law, the law says do this and live, but if you do this, you must do it perfectly. You must do it without any blemish, without any spot, without any wrinkle, without any defect, without any shortcoming. And I don't know about you, I've never been able to pull that one off. And really, neither has anyone else in history. In fact, only one has ever fulfilled the law perfectly to a T, and his name is Jesus. And so that works-based law leads to death under the weight of our own sin. We can't be perfect. But Jesus came, 
And he lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died so that we could receive the gift of liberation that comes only through the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So, so he institutes this new law of the spirit of life. And one of the spirit's key roles is to constantly remind us of this, that we are doubly free. And here's where the rubber meets the road. You can come together on a Sunday like we're doing and, and say, oh, I'm free. And woohoo, yes, there, there's, there's no condemnation for me in Jesus. But then there's this little thing called Monday. And you go out and you get criticized by your boss. Or you get in a fight with your spouse or your, your kid escorts you to your very last nerve. And, and we can believe these things are true and yet not live as if they're true in our real lives. It's because we let all the other messages overwhelm us. We tune our ears to the frequencies of the critics the frequencies of the naysayers, the frequencies of our, our enemy, Satan, instead of tuning our heart to the voice of the Spirit who's reminding us. See, we find out at the very beginning of this chapter that one of the key roles of the Holy Spirit is to remind us again and again and again and again and again that we are free and that freedom in Christ must be translated then into our everyday lives. Some of you remember the great Nelson Mandela. He spent 27 years in prison, uh, incarcerated. And on the day that he was released from prison, he walks from the cell through the gate and out into the free world for the first time in 27 years. 10,000 days he had spent locked up. And he said this quote. He said, as I finally walked through those gates, I felt, even at the age of 71, that my life was beginning anew. That, that's what Paul's saying. If you're in Christ Jesus, your life has begun anew. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is no more condemnation for you. My church family, I pray that we would look and behave this morning as though we are set free in Jesus Christ, alive to God, alive to Christ, alive to, to his spirit, alive to his word, alive to all the things that matter. I can't wait to see how the Spirit will use this study over the next nine weeks to transform his church. So listen, let, let me just point you to some next steps as we begin here today. The, the first is, would you commit to the series? It, this is gonna be a great focus for us during Lent and, and all the way through Easter, just to prioritize it and say, I'm not gonna miss one of these weeks as we walk through this life-changing chapter of the Bible. The second thing is, is to know that, that our staff has already committed to memorizing a portion of Romans 8. There's something very powerful that happens when you commit a section of the Bible to memory. And there are all kinds of gems in this chapter. Many of us on staff have committed to memorizing 21 verses, Romans 8, 18 to 29. If you'd like to join us on that adventure, there's a little memorization schedule in the devotional book that, that hopefully you received. You can also download a digital copy. Uh, there's a fillable PDF version over at our page, whoisgrace.com slash read. But there's a third next step that I wanna lead us into today. Just spiritually, there can only be one response to what we learned about today, and that is just overwhelming thanksgiving and overwhelming gratitude. It's to respond with overwhelming worship and love toward God, that he has found a way to justify sinners like us, that we would go home this afternoon repeating this phrase to ourselves, tell yourself, I'm in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation. God has already decided what he thinks of me. What a healing balm that is. What a beautiful truth that is. What a glorious reality that is. When you stop and think about it just for a moment, you can hardly even believe it. 
And a million questions arise in your mind as to how that can be possible, but it's true. It's truer than anything else that you'll see or hear today or this week for the rest of your lifetime. That in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. Your sins have been blotted out. And now, under the law of the spirit of life, you are free. It takes your breath away. Let's worship him now for that truth. I love you guys.